Warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. In this series of special Then Is Now episodes, 13 Days of Hallowtober, we are exploring what are widely regarded as the scariest movies of all time. Joining me once again today is Spency Dompiece. Spency, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Enjoying these podcasts here, this 13 Days of Hallowtober. Okay, so the film we're going to cover today is The Wolfman from 1941, starring Lon Chaney Jr., You've been a long while coming. I'm not buying anything. And I am not selling anything. I expected you sooner. Oh, I remember you. That night. And in the crypt. Go inside. You killed the wolf. Well, there's no crime in that, is there? The wolf was Balaam. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Balaam became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet, or a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Take this charm, the pentagram, the sign of the wolf. It can break the evil spell. Evil spell. Pentagram. Wolfbane. Oh, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm gonna get out of here. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, quit handing me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Wear this charm over your heart, always. All right, all right, I'll take it. What's it worth to you? I'll give you... Do you dare to show me the wound? What? Do you dare to show me the wound? Go now. And heaven help you. At some time in the early 20th century, after learning of the death of his brother, Larry Talbot, played by Lon Chaney Jr., returns to his ancestral home in Lanwelly, Wales, to reconcile with his estranged father, Sir John Talbot. 
While there, Larry becomes romantically interested in a local girl named Gwen Conliffe, who runs an antique shop. As a pretext to converse with her, he purchases a silver-headed walking stick decorated with a wolf. Gwen tells him that it represents a werewolf, which she defines as a man who changes into a wolf at certain times of the year. Throughout the film, various villagers recite a poem whenever the subject of werewolves comes up. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. That night, Larry attempts to rescue Gwen's friend Jenny from what he believes to be a sudden wolf attack. He kills the beast with his new walking stick, but is bitten on the chest in the process. A gypsy fortune teller named Maliva reveals to Larry that the animal which bit him was actually her son Bela in the form of a wolf. She also reveals that Larry will transform into a wolf as well, since he who is bitten by a werewolf and lives will turn into one himself. Talbot eventually becomes a werewolf that kills by night, and he struggles with this new diabolical persona that he has become in order to prevent any more murders. And that is The Wolfman So Spence. Uh, your first thoughts, your first impressions, when did you first see this, which I don't remember? I have been watching The Wolfman since I was at least, I want to say five or six. Oh, it, that's true. Yeah. It's been one of my original universal horror films since the very beginning. It's probably been the number one that I actually truly loved you know, since then, just because, I don't know, I've always been a a creature kid, I keep saying, and I just love the Wolfman. Everything You've been a monster kid. Yeah. The Wolfman just really hit me at a young age, and I love the music, and I love the effects, and I love, you know, the story. I thought it was all really cool, and I didn't understand most of it growing up, and now rewatching it again, there's a lot of things I'm picking out that I'm somewhat sad that i'm picking out because it just changes how i see the movie but at the same time it still adds to the value that the movie has yeah exactly and you know being a monster kid myself growing a real uh, the the first generation of monster kids or i guess maybe second um yeah i grew up watching it on tv it was on tv all the time whether it was creature double feature or just late night you know the universal classics were always there growing up so i was always exposed to them and then i was able to expose you to them and and they're just as good today as they were when you know they originally came out oh yeah absolutely there's no there's no doubt about that i thought this movie was just phenomenal with a lot of the just the fun stuff that goes on and it tells a very good cohesive story because i mean back then they weren't thinking about sequels they weren't thinking about you know, greater ensemble films, like some of the things that actually got to come out, they were just trying to make a good, scary movie that would make a lot of money. And you know what? It still told a great story, and it's a, it's a full circle story, too. You can have this one movie, and it's never really going... It doesn't need any sequels. Right, right. But as we know, there are quite a few sequels. We'll get into that in a little bit. Let's just talk about the cast and crew. And of course, uh, you know, right off the top, Lon Chaney Jr. as Lawrence Talbot. He went on to make this character his own. This was his first horror movie role. Uh, prior to this, he got acclaim for being in the um, adaptation of of the book of Mice and Men, where he played Lenny alongside Burgess Meredith playing George. And that's a really entertaining movie. We'll have to cover at some point later on. But for now, we're going to talk about The Wolfman. And what did you think of Lon's performance here as Larry Talbot? I've loved it since I was a kid. And I I loved his performance. And I'm, now that I'm rewatching it, I don't love the character of Lawrence Talbot. He's a bit of a creep yeah. uh, at the very <laughs> beginning. And he's just kind of... 
I don't know, really out there as a person. And it makes sense because it's sort of a fish out of water story as he's coming back from America from 18 years of living in America back to England and to the point where he lost the the English accent. Right, in they didn't even mention that. In the movie. He's, he's, an, he's an American, essentially, at least at heart. And now he's coming back to his ancestral home of England. And it's very, he's just, I don't know, I suppose things are different, you could say, but it still was really kind of weird to watch him encroach upon this girl who had to keep pushing him off and eventually had to tell him she's engaged (laughs) and that whole scene when you watch it now it's a little creepy because he's into astronomy and telescopes and he's fixing the father's telescope and as he's testing it out he happens to realize he can see right into this girl's room and he to the point where he sees her take her star earrings off and put them on her dresser and and it's a little pervy and and uh, peeping Tomish, don't you think? Yeah, it wasn't exactly ideal. As a child, it never really registered that that what was go- really going on. Because, I mean, a lot of the dialogue I was missing. And, you know, now that I'm really kind of seeing it, it's just, you know, it's not cool. I really don't think by any stretch of the imagination that that was relatively acceptable to, you know, talk about something that you know about a person just by finding out purely by staring at them through their bedroom window. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely was creepy. One element of the story that I thought, well, the remake kind of touched on it more in this, he's supposed to be estranged from his father and they don't really get into that in this movie. It's mentioned and you can kind of tell that his father has a little bit of disdain for him, but he also has concern too. They don't really, there's no like active, dialogue about their relationship or them trying to repair it yeah there's a lot of um at least in this movie it's really just has to do with that being his setup for why he's there and then he's kind of coming back and now he has to get used to being in charge of the estate and you know has to come back and there's this big thing that um the father is concerned about like the the name the talbot name he's really he doesn't want you know it, it to come out that oh, his son is potentially a murderer when, you know, he kills what he thinks is a wolf, turns out to be Bela. The gypsy, you know, yeah. Yeah, he, you know, in that sense, he doesn't want that to get out. He doesn't want that to hurt the family name. You know, he wants his son to be in charge of this estate. He wants all that. And they do touch on the beginning that the reason uh, he came back was because his older brother had been killed somehow. He died somehow. And that was the reason that he came back. And then his father mentioned that uh, he was the younger son who really wasn't too happy with the fact that he wasn't going to get really much or any of the estate. And so now that he's back and his his brother's dead, it doesn't exactly put a good light on why they're there. Right, right, right. And speaking of the father, Claude Rains plays Sir John Talbot. And he was, up to this point, he was well known for playing... Um, he was in Casablanca, and he also played the title role in The Invisible Man. He played that with, with just murderous glee. He was so good in that. Um, I thought in this he was good. He was very austere. He didn't, he didn't like do a whole heck of a lot in the movie except towards the end or at the end of the movie. I mean, we're here to watch Lawrence Talbot, though. We're not here to watch Sir John Talbot. I think he was there as like the a big force in... Lawrence's life of why you know why he's here and now he's giving him a place to say and kind of basically setting up the rest of his life for him and right. so it's the kind of this thing where 
yeah, there's some disdain there, but I mean, Lawrence isn't exactly thrilled to see his father again. So it actually takes some some tragedy for them to kind of almost reconnect in that way where, you know, Lawrence is worried that, you know, he doesn't want to disappoint his father anymore. He's not about that anymore. He kind of sees the the value in staying and kind of trying to stick with his family, at least in the countryside and stuff like that. Right. And so John does kind of indulge him a little bit in terms of like when he tells him that he was bitten by a wolf, that he killed a wolf, he didn't kill a man. He doesn't necessarily poo-poo it right away. It's everybody around them that does. He, he, it almost seems implied that he's kind of keeping an open mind to the point where um, towards the end of the movie, he and under Lawrence's request, he straps him to a chair to prove to him that they, he's not a werewolf and that they're going to go catch the real killer out there. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a big, big point because we don't ever actually have to see Lawrence transform and escape the chair. We just get to see them out hunting, and then all of a sudden, the Wolfman is out again. So we know as an audience, okay, that didn't work. And then, of course, the climax of the film is the father having a fight with the Wolfman. Spoiler. If they're if they're listening to this, I think they've seen the movie. <laughs> I think they've seen it. And if you haven't seen it and you're watching it at this point, you're probably severely confused. Pause the podcast and go watch the movie and come I'm back. I'm not going <laughs> to. No, not you. The, the, the listener. I know. I'm not sitting here going to anticipate that they haven't seen it, that this is my review of them. I, this, I'm, this is not a review of before the movie. This is a post-movie review. Right. But nonetheless, <laughs> the big climax of the movie is the father having a fight with the wolfman and actually killing him. Which, when I rewatched this with my girlfriend, she was surprised that that was the end of the movie. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. She, um, she was very surprised because at the end, he kills a wolf, a, a very weird-looking bipedal wolf, <laughs> and it transforms back into his son. And he, there's a big moment where Sir John witnesses that. His eyes widen as to what he's seeing as right. he's watching this wolf that he killed transform back into his son. And um, even... Uh, uh, Maria Espinosa's character? Maria Uspinskaya, who that's played Maliva, yes. Maliva, that's right. Maliva. Maliva's character, um, she gives her little prayer that says, you know, you walk a thorny way, but it's not your fault. That whole prayer she says again, and it helps, you know, Lawrence kind of come back to being human and died. And then so Sir John witnesses that, and they don't really give a lot into that and i i understand why as it's really just supposed to be a monster flick right it's not meant to be you know exploring human suffering and fantastic situations like we do now right but there's still there's still great acting on claude rains as part of him being shocked at witnessing that at witnessing something that he you know said earlier in the film was fantastic he doesn't think men can truly become wolves but they can become whatever they want in their mind in their minds yes and so when that happens, he's crazy shocked, and then everyone else shows up, and they find the bot. Um, actually, she didn't die. They find the the girl he was attacking. It was the the main oh, girl. Oh, Gwen. Yeah, yeah, Gwen. Gwen yeah, they he didn't kill her. I totally no. thought he killed her. Like right. looking back on her, but he didn't. And he attacked her, and basically, um, they everyone was like, "Oh yeah, wow, look, you know, it must have been you know Lawrence Talbot who saved Gwen and killed the wolf, and it got him." Yeah. He got away, you know, that kind of thing. And you can see Sir John just is speechless. Right. He just has to let it unfold. And again, talking about role-playing games, he probably uh, failed his sanity check there at that point and just was dumbfounded and couldn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he probably 
just didn't have anything to say at witnessing that. I don't think, I think that's, that, that probably was his first sanity check yeah. in the entire thing. Cause it, <laughs> up until that point, it was all just like mystery. You know, we, as the audience knew what was going on and we believed Lawrence Talbot a million percent, but nobody else really did. His father was trying to just give him the benefit of the doubt that he was seeing things and things weren't as they were. And then of course it just gets worse and worse from there. Right. So let's just move quickly through the rest of the cast here. So we've got Warren William, who played Dr. Lloyd. And Dr. Lloyd was very convinced that everything was in Lawrence Talbot's mind, that there was no such thing. He, he, again, you know, and with Sir John, too, he um, he definitely was protecting Lawrence right from the get go. When when Lawrence killed Bela, he was he he's friends with the police. He's you know, he's pretty high up in where they live in England. He's got a lot of clout. So he's able to protect him. But the the doctor kind of is the one who's saying, well, I think there's something wrong with him. He's mentally ill. Uh, but Warren William, I thought, did a good job as Dr. Lloyd. Then we had Ralph Bellamy, who played Colonel Paul Montford. He was the uh, chief of police, I guess, or one of their detectives. Yeah, I guess he wasn't chief if he was a colonel. Patrick Knowles plays Frank Andrews, who is Gwen Conliffe's fiance. And he's also the gameskeeper yep. for the for the Talbots. Bela Lugosi has a great part in here. Oh, let me jump back real quick. Patrick Knowles also shows up in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Does he play the same character? No, he's a different character. His name is Frank, though, the character. That's funny. In that, um, but he is the scientist that they enlist to help transfer the mind of the Wolfman into the body of the Frankenstein monster. And he decides he doesn't. he wants to see the Frankenstein monster at its full power. But Bela Lugosi, who plays Bela, the the gypsy here, he's the first werewolf in the film, the one that Larry kills and who bites Larry. And I thought for a small part, probably, a, well, I guess it's definitely a decade after the first Dracula, not only was Bela, I think, really handsome in this movie, like I, I can comfortably say he was a good-looking man in this movie, he put so much pathos into this short part that you really felt bad for him, like... Because he's a gypsy, so he's a fortune teller. He reads Gwen's friend's palm and sees the the pentagram in it and realizes she's going to be his next victim. And he almost bursts into tears. I mean, he just, I thought he just was, you know, and he just basically tells her, leave, go, no, leave. Yeah. Scares the crap out of her. He was, he didn't want to obviously say anything because at the very beginning they give, into the, they give us the definition of lycanthropy and talk about werewolves, at least at the very beginning. And then... Um, as Lawrence is kind of exploring the countryside of where he's living, the gypsies are in town, quote right. unquote, and they're, um, you know, they have this big, big festival, you know, whatever it is. And he kind of understands like the little legend of the werewolf. And even he asks his father about it. He knows something about the werewolf and everybody in the town seems to know something. about. Yeah, exactly. It's a legends. local legend to them and to the gypsies. It's a lot more real. And so. This movie did a great job of establishing a couple of rules about it, of very focusing on the beast aspect, except just the fact that it's physically formed. Because when Bela's about to transform into the wolf, he um, the horses around him start getting riled, which I never noticed as a kid. Yes, His, yeah. The animals around Lawrence and Bela get very, very upset yeah. around him, which I think is a phenomenal thing. and. The they sense that, the werewolfness. And the fact that um, both Bela and Lawrence will like take off their shoes because it's severely uncomfortable to wear wolf feet with real shoes on. You know, it's right, a big right. thing that when they find Bela, he's barefoot, which is really confusing. 
Right. They assumed he heard the screams and he didn't have time to put his shoes on to go and save the girl when, in fact, he was in wolf form killing the girl. And I think that they didn't really want to touch on it at all. They just were really probably looking to make a good monster movie. But Lawrence Talbot, he transformed into kind of a kind of a half man, half wolf deal. He was very, very bipedal. His po- his posture changed, but his size really didn't change. He was just a man with dog features. Right. And Bela turned into a full-blown quadrupedal wolf. Right, which I didn't know if that was an error or if was had he been a werewolf for so long that he got to that point where he could attain full wolf form. I think what they did here, I don't think that was a total error. I think they just kind of left that as like, well, a man gets attacked by a wolf and then becomes the wolf man. You know, it wasn't necessarily meant to be anything crazy, but that leaves the, the rules of the world up to interpretation, which by many, many filmmakers, video game designers and book writers have taken to their full extent, you know, come up with different ideas is, you know, Werewolf the Apocalypse has different views on, right. you know, the curse the versus, forms versus the forms and things like that. Right. And, that, and that's a role playing game too, Werewolf the Apocalypse. And in that you have, I think, five different forms. You have the Glabro form, which is the Lawrence Talbot, you know, humanoid, hairy form. Then you have the Krinos form, which is sort of like the howling where they're full on you know, wolf-shaped humanoids, but they're tall. They've got the wolf-type chest and the snout. And then you've got, I guess it's four forms. You've got lupus, which is the just the actual full wolf form, like an American werewolf in London, except they're huge. They're like, um, not war wolves, but what are those? You're thinking of Hispo. His, oh, Hispo is the wolf form. And then what's yeah. the lupus form? Is a regular wolf. Oh, okay. So Hispo is the giant wolf. That's the, right. A dire, dire wolf. wolf. Yes, yeah. that's what the word I was looking for. And then, yeah. Lupus is what um, Bela turned into. He turned into a regular wolf. And to me, like, as a fan of that role-playing game and kind of knowing a thing or two about that, you can take that, the rules of that movie, and turn that into whatever you want. You can say, oh, there's the reason for this and here's the reason for that because they don't try to give us all that much information about it. They just give us the little poem of even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night shall become a wolf. When the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Or his underwear is too tight. <laughs> Thank you, Sven Gulli. Uh, but that's the only real kind of lore we get about werewolves and stuff. And then, you know, there's just some people believe it's just a mental illness of, you know, men attacking people because they believe they're wolves. And then, you know, to the gypsies, the Romanians, it's a big, big thing. That is a real curse. Right, right. And if I remember correctly, when I was younger, reading up on werewolf legends, they, like some of the Indian legends would be a guy would have uh, wolf skin and he'd put it on himself and then like really believe that he was a wolf and go around killing people. Or that whatever. was the same thing in um, Norse mythology, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's two good. completely different continents had a similar legend. So I right. mean. There's probably, you know, you could probably use that in some sort of media, the kind of the legend around that. And that makes me think of Sir John's line where he says, uh, all legends have a basis in fact. So uh, yeah. there, think, a lot of these legends around the world are, you know, are connected. Yeah, it, it definitely works. I mean, obviously they weren't sitting here trying to make a film that was exploring all these ideas. They were really just trying to make a right. good monster flick with a decent story. And that's exactly what they did. And I thought, it, I thought it was really scary because you don't actually get to see a full transformation until two-thirds into the movie. Lawrence Talbot doesn't become 
the Wolfman for quite a while. He gets That's attacked, yeah. like somebody yeah. gets killed and all this stuff, and he gets all this crazy suffering for quite a while. You know, he's right. trying to, you know, could you know, conserve whatever relationship he has with Gwen and trying to, you know, manage to hold himself together mentally because he's been through a trauma and now he believes it's something a lot worse and everyone else is saying, well, it's probably not that. So now he's not only questioning his reality, but now he's in a mix of having a trauma, questioning his reality, and actually being affected by a real curse. Right, right, exactly. It's crazy. And speaking, it is crazy. And speaking of Gwen Conliffe, she's played by Evelyn Onkers, who does show up in quite a few other Universal movies, and I think a couple of the monster movies. She might even have been in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, but I'm not 100% sure on that. We'll return to 13 Days of Hallowtober after these messages. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found Podserve and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, Podserve makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on podparadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. Podserve's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And... When you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder on my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I 
I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. And then we have, as we mentioned before, Maria Uspinskaya, who plays Maliva, the gypsy lady. That character, Maliva, and the same actress, does show up again in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, right? Mm -hmm. Where she helps Larry Talbot yet again. And uh, the actress, Maria Uspinskaya, she taught acting. And she, uh, in order to fund her teaching career, she became an actress, a full-time actress. And she was in quite a few movies. You'd be surprised if you go and look her up on IMDb. She's out there, and uh, she does a great job. I totally believed her. that, And she felt bad. She, While there probably were things she could have done to help Bela, like she gave Lawrence this necklace that was supposed to protect him. He gives it to Gwen, and then you never see it again. And she could have given that to Bela. She could have chained Bela up every time they knew he was going to turn into a wolf so he wouldn't kill people. Yeah, and the big thing in this movie that really um, kind of gets lost as more werewolf movies come around is... The fact that it's a seasonal thing. The Wolfman is a seasonal thing. The The original poem goes, and the autumn moon is bright. It's not a monthly thing. It's not a full moon thing. Oh, it's a that's a good point. Thing. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So that's why I could imagine Bela has actually been living with the curse for so long. Is right. Because you actually probably aren't transforming into a wolf all that often. It right. probably really is just an autumn thing. And then the rest of the year, theoretically, you're actually kind of curse-free. 
And then as the movies went on, it just became whenever there was a full moon. Unless you're in the movie Van Helsing, and if clouds cover the moon, then you're good to go, unless the clouds go away, and then you're a wolf again. All right. It wasn't the best <laughs> written story, but it was a very, very fun monster movie. Well, speaking of writing, this movie was written by Kurt Schadmack, who wrote House of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Earth versus the, Slying, the, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and his list just goes on and on and on. And I credit him with creating a lot of what uh, the werewolf legends that we go by today in terms of what we just talked about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this movie set the precedent for how werewolves are portrayed. I mean, sure, since special effects got better, we've got more of the crazy crinos form gorilla size werewolves where it's the like the um the head of a man, uh, the head of a wolf on the body of a man a lot more than it is just a, a man with wolf features. Right, like, like right. Or even a more upright dog or, or upright wolf with more of humanoid features like the arms yeah exactly that's a that's a big big thing that we see now and personally i i credit werewolf the apocalypse for putting the two of them together because in the context of the role-playing game the form that we see Lawrence talbot in the glabro form is dubbed the man wolf because he has more human features than wolf features right and um, and in the game, obviously, you're in a, lo- a lot more in control of yourself than being just a feral monster for most of this movie. But then the the bigger form, the Krinos form, was dubbed the Wolf Man. Right. There's, a, right. there's a, a stark difference between the two of them. That's true. And this movie was directed by George Wagner, who did a bunch of movies and quite a few TV shows, including episodes of The Green Hornet, Batman, and The Man from Uncle. And on this go around, when we watched it, I really was paying attention to the the moody atmosphere and his use of shadows. I mean, when I've talked before on the show about black and white movies and how uh, the right person behind the camera, whether it's the director or the cinematographer, um, they'll make use of that black and white. And this movie definitely did. There was a lot of fog. They used mm. a lot of fog in the movie. It it, um, it just gave an overall fun, scary atmosphere. Yeah, because we cared about... Lawrence Talbot, you know, as much as, you know, you may not love the way he, you know, goes about trying to attract a girl peering into windows. Yeah, he's not he's not necessarily the best person, but he wasn't, you know, forcing himself in any way. He was just being creepy. Right. So he's not a bad person. There's no at no point does the movie make us want to not like him. And then he becomes the victim of a curse. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing. The Wolfman is the villain. Lawrence Talbot is a victim. Right, and he he basically says to her towards the end that I gotta get out, I gotta get out of town. I can't be with you, you know, because he saw the star in the palm of her hand, and he knew she would be his next victim, and so he was just in order to protect her, he was gonna separate himself from everybody that he loved. Yeah, and I find it really funny that even though they've had re- some real attempts at stopping that curse of seeing the star in the palm of your victim's hand, and then you go attacking them. There was some real effort to try and stop that. And it still kind of happened. So there's a little bit of fate happening in this movie. Right. Especially since at the end of the movie, they didn't try and follow it up with, oh, the the curse was continued on because you know he attacked this person before he got killed. It was, no, at the end of the movie, the wolf man was laid to rest. Unfortunately, by his own father. Right. <laughs> like, but ironically, with his own cane. Yeah, exactly. The, the cane he bought at the cane. beginning that he used to kill Bela also was used to kill him. Right, which I thought was great irony. 
And, um, you know, in talking about the, the mood and the atmosphere of this film, too, though, they, it's enhanced by the music, which is credited to three guys, Charles Previb, Hans J. Salter, and Frank Skinner. This music is iconic. It was reused in a lot of other Universal films, particularly Hans Salter's music. It was reused as stock music in quite a few movies. He also composed an episode of Lost in Space, the original series, and he did the soundtrack for Detroit Rock City in 1999. So he had a long career, but... Would you say that the music definitely adds to the atmosphere of the film? The music in this film is beyond iconic. I have heard that track in my head for years. I love, love that track. I love just the sound and everything. I still get, like, every time I think of this music piece, I still get the visual of the wolfman, you know, skulking across the, the forest floor. Right. I love that. And then I also get a couple of shots of him fighting Frankenstein. Yes. That's a big, yep. big thing for me. That in my whole childhood. end fight scene in As Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. That piece of music. And I love it. The music in this movie is absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. It really is. It makes it scary, too. It also, you can have a scene where there's not necessarily a lot going on. It's the Wolfman walking across. But the music helps us to take in the sight of, oh, my God, we're actually seeing a real curse in action. We're right. actually seeing some truth to the matter of what we're dealing with. And um, about the Wolfman and his look, um, a lot of it, well, it's all credited to a guy named Jack Pierce, who was the makeup artist for Universal. He did the makeup for Bela Lugosi and Dracula in 1931, as well as Boris Karloff's Frankenstein makeup, which that right there, he created an iconic character with the look, the flat top head and the, the neck bolts. Um, he went on to do Karloff again in The Mummy. He made another iconic look. I believe he worked on The Invisible Man, although it was just mainly the bandages for, for the professor there. But it really was the Wolfman that, that put him into the stratosphere because he used yak hair. And they did sort of a time-lapse photography. Now, in this movie, they don't, you don't actually see his face transform. You see his feet in a scene in which there is a glaring blooper in this movie that I had a hard time with when we watched it this time around because I, I've kind of forgotten that when I saw it, it I was like, oops. But the, the transformation, you see his feet get hairier and hairier as the moon is rising. And that was really cool. But he's wearing a, t a tank top T-shirt. And then the next scene, he's the wolfman running out through the moors and he's got a full-on button-down shirt. Not only does he have it but buttoned all the way up to the top, it's tucked into his pants. <laughs> So I, I wonder if that was just a continuity error on the production part. I, it has to be. They can't have, have said, oh, well, he put a shirt on before he ran out. Yeah, I don't think there wasn't any explanation to it. It wasn't given any attention. And personally, it, like I said, the intention of the film was not to be this intense story, you know, looking at the suffering of one man. It was meant to be a monster movie. And right. I think that the movie actually works better with the shirt on because that costume follows in every movie. That, and it was probably easier just to do his hands and face rather than his whole exactly. torso it's a big, arms. It's a big thing. And I was like, when you pointed it out, i very, very okay with it. It does, <laughs> it does put a bad taste at the very beginning when you're like, okay, yeah. wait a second. But Whoops. I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. I still like it. Now, the only other thing that I had... Um, not really an issue with, but I have a hard time wrapping my brain around is the scar. Now, first, he gets bitten by the wolf. They do say that his clothes were bloody. Of course, it's an old film, so you don't really see any blood. And then when he goes to check himself, it's all healed up. The next day, 
clearly the magic of being a werewolf. You heal faster. Um, but then a little while later, he mentions that he has a scar. And when he shows the scar, it's a perfect shape of a pentagram. And I think it was the doctor or his father says, well, any animal could have done that. <laughs> and it was like, mm, animals don't bite a star shape. All right, I guess I could wrap my brain around the, the fangs on the top and the bottom, maybe making a star pattern. No, I when I when I saw that, I'm like, oh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Like those those two things are really my bit my my understanding complaints of the movie and it's just they could have just like glossed over that like look I have a scar and you could say oh I don't see anything you know if if you did that you'd be like okay right. magic fine but any animal could have made that perfect star on your chest <laughs> um, and I think it was more the the uh, imagery they wanted the star because you had the pentagram that would appear in people's hands that were the potential victims of the werewolf and so i think they wanted that to be kind of a running theme and they were like yeah just go with it and like make it a star shaped yeah because it was also on the cane that's true on the, the side of the, was on the, cane. the wolf cane yep that's I, absolutely true i think there was a bit of legend thrown in there and you you know you could make the argument of oh he didn't you know he saw a regular scar and lawrence talbot sees a pentagram as a sign of the curse right but they didn't make any effort to fix that, so it is what it is. <laughs> right. And it's just funny, though, you know, I could put words in the writer's mouth and kind of argue that, okay, since it's a supernatural being, he, he bites you. The bite heals because now you're basically immortal unless you're killed with silver. So the initial scar actually heals into the shape of a pentagram because that's the symbol, whatever evil symbol was used to create werewolves to begin with. You know what I mean? You could argue that, but I don't think that was what the writer intended. No, I don't think there's a whole... I think everything that the writer was thinking was laid on the table. Yeah. And they they really didn't touch that at all, so I'm I'm fine with it. I, I don't love it. It's a silly error, but at the same time, this movie does a lot other things super, super great, so I can forgive two silly errors. Yes, exactly. So your final thoughts on The Wolfman, Spency? 10 out of 10, 11 out of 10. I love the movie. And I think it, I think it is scary because it's, you know, I think, what, two people die total? Three? Three, the, three the, people the, die the total, two of them yeah. being werewolves? Yeah. Like, it's kind of, it, it's not exactly a very, very intense film per se. Okay, wait, maybe four people. But, yeah, it's not a movie that's scary because of what you see. It's a movie that's scary because of what the character is going through. And I think because I have, unfortunately, nostalgia bias, but I still think it's a very, very quality movie. And even my girlfriend, like, really, really enjoyed it and thought the ending was a little tragic. You know? Yes, even I think that's he what was, they were going for. Even though he was a cursed victim... You know, but he was still also the wolf man. He, it was still a tragic ending to see that, you know, he still attacked the one he loved to an extent and was still killed by his own father. It's a very, very sad, sad ending. And I think that's really makes the movie what it is. And would you recommend this to someone your age or younger? Uh, yeah, realistically speaking, I would. Because besides those two errors, the thing that really would get people my age would be the black and white. And... Honestly, the effects in this movie are done well. They were aware of what they could get away with and what they couldn't get away with. There wasn't anything that was done poorly in the in the case of what was on screen. Right. And like you said, there was a lot of awesome shadowed and then lit up moments. A lot of, you know, 
continuities that worked throughout the film and a lot of motifs that you really could pick up if you were going into it with an open mind. So anyone who's around, you know, under the age of 30 and has not seen this movie, if you're interested in it as it being the defining factor in a werewolf lore for at least the movie industry, right? I recommend it and I recommend just going into it trying to see what they were trying to do. You have to think about it in the sense of back in, when did this movie come out? 1941. 1941, the start of the Second World War, this is right. the best they had. <laughs> And it honestly is really, really good. Oh, yeah. And at the time, it blew away audiences. I think... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to keep saying that I really enjoy it, and I think it's a quality film. It is a you know two errors, but besides that, if you go into it and not expecting you know a crazy CGI-filled, awesome, scary movie filled with tons of gore and more focus on the actual human experience to an extent and try and appreciate the story then you'll love it. It's yeah. great. It definitely holds up. It's one of my favorites. I have to say, I, I vacillate between The Wolfman and The Creature from the Black Lagoon as my, my favorite universal horror films. I'm, I still haven't decided yet which one is I, I love them. I love more because I love them both. But The Wolfman definitely has a special place in my heart, especially, you know, having seen it as a kid. And this reminds me of something that I've said before on this show and I, I stole from another podcaster. When you think about the universal films, okay, you've got Frankenstein, the monster, who is, it's like infancy, childhood. It's You're brought into this world, you don't know anything about anything, and you, you, all you want to do is be loved. Then the Wolfman represents adolescence, where your body's changing, your emotions are out of control, and you know you can't control these things, and you don't know what to do, and it's it's scary. Then as an adult, you know, especially as men, you want to be suave like Dracula, you want to be able to have women fall under your spell, and you want to be able to control things. And then the mummy represents old age. <laughs> and you, you could take that analogy and, and do what you will with it. But I think that the Wolfman definitely, for me, kind of struck that note as a kid, maybe subconsciously. I don't think it was ever conscious, but it was just you could you could like as a kid, there were so many werewolf movies that I could identify with. This was chief among them. And there was, you know, I was a teenage werewolf kind of really harps on that teenage angst and the the, the body changing kind of thing. And it, this movie definitely holds up. I definitely recommend you show it to your loved ones, especially younger people. You really should expose them to these films. And The Wolfman is really a good place to start. And it's one of those movies also that since it's far enough away in time and since the effects aren't actually as graphic per se because you know all you're seeing is a man get hairier and hairier and start to look like a dog and it's done in a way that isn't very you know graphic or painful right. or gross so like you could show this to like a three-year-old and they may enjoy it and they i may, have and they have <laughs> <laughs> they may enjoy what they're seeing well thanks again spency don't peace for talking to the to me about the wolfman today from 1941 on our 13 days of hallowtober and join us again next time for another great episode thank you for having me Well, we hope you enjoyed this special edition episode of Then Is Now called 13 Days of Hallotober. If you want to chime in on today's show, please send us an email at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website, havenpodcasts.com. 
And we have another show called The East Meets the West, where we discuss spaghetti westerns and Shaw Brothers movies. So we hope you check that show out as well. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes so that more people can find us and spread the word about Then Is Now. Join us again next episode. Thank you.